the missed a couple of things about the de- decomposition of bodies and how we have to look forward to that. All right. Okay. So yesterday we, we discussed the effect of kosher food. What is the effect of kosher food? It leaves a trace of klipa, which is only removed. How? The purgatory of the grave, which specifically means? Um, you see the body and just for maggots. Yes. <laughs> the maggots. Experiencing Grossness. the maggots. Um, I have a question. Yes. For sure, I'll ask after. It's the best thing we did before. So there's some asking. Well, why don't you start asking? asking. <laughs> I decided I'll ask after. Well, it'll be better for me than it's Okay, fine. So we are at the paragraph that starts, as for innocent idle chatter, which I guess you can imagine is not going to be that innocent, right? Um, you have the place? Okay. As for innocent idle chatter, okay, um, I would like to quibble with the translation of innocent. Um, the, actual, the actual Hebrew is beheter, which means permitted. So it is permitted idle chatter rather than innocent idle chatter. Um, but okay. As for permitted idle chatter, such as in the case of ignoramus who cannot study. So what happens to the soul if you are speaking idle chatter in a permitted manner? Now, there are two possibilities to speak idle chatter in a permitted manner. Number one, you're a woman. What did you say? There's two. There's two possibilities of speaking idle chatter in a permitted manner. Number one is you're a woman. Was the intended published audience, audience the time was published for women? No, no. No. Does that mean the ideas don't relate to women? No. No. Right. But who was buying and reading Torah literature in the late 17, early 1800s in Eastern Europe? Men. That's right. So the Tanya is written. So therefore, it doesn't bring up that particular thing. However. Women can, by definition, by, by virtue of being women, can, are permitted to, to engage in idle chatter. Yes. Men are generally forbidden to engage in idle chatter. And therefore, if a man is idly chattering, he is sinning. And sinning is a discussion we'll talk about shortly. Um, what is a possibility where someone who um, is engaging in idle chatter in a permitted way and is a man? He doesn't have the obligation of learning. How could he not have the obligation of learning? Because he's a person of He's an ignoramus and incapable of learning. Okay? What is, is it a sin for a woman to have idle chatter with a man? Then is it it's a sin for men and women to chat generally, now that you bring okay. it up. Yeah. What? Okay. I said believe it doesn't say don't talk to your wife. Let's be honest. Not in like no, talk. no. Do not. Al tarbe sichemishu. Tarbe means to have abundant. Do not have an abundant amount of talking with your wife. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So let us let us first off. What is idle chatter? Okay. So there are four. Categories of speech. How many categories are there? Four. Four. Okay. First, there's what we will call divrei chachma, words of wisdom. Okay. Okay. That would be Torah, in other words, divrei Torah. 
Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly modifying something the Rambam says to make it fit more with Chassidus. So you have Torah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Number two, things that are part of what is called Yeshuvah Shel the settling of the world. Okay? Okay, I will go back. I'm first making the list. Number three is forbidden speech. What is forbidden speech? That should be kind of self-explanatory. That's stuff that you're not allowed to say. And finally, what? Dvar Masurim, forbidden speech. Which you can then break down to many different categories, but okay. And finally, what's the last category? Well, if you only have four categories and right, everything doesn't fit into the first three, it's going to be by definition. Idle chatter. That's called dvarim betelim, which would more accurately be translated as pointless speech. Hey. With a test, as in the word bottle. Okay. So the idea is like this. So divrei Torah or divrei chachma, words of Torah, are intrinsically valuable. They are. They they should be spoken because by speaking them, you are connecting to the holiness of God intrinsic in those words, embedded in those words. Good. Okay. That makes sense? We discussed this when we learned about Torah mitzvahs? Okay. Then you have another category of things which are forbidden to speak. They would be things like Lashon Hara. You're not allowed to slander people, or not speak negatively about people. You're not allowed to slander people. Did you No, I'm skipping it. Okay. Um, you're not allowed to slander people. Um, what else is forbidden speech? Are you allowed to use, are you allowed to use, um, um, are you allowed to use disgusting speech? Is that permitted according to Torah? No, right? So foul language is forbidden. I don't know if people know that, but it's forbidden to use foul language. What? Like it's forbidden. Like it's a mirror? Yeah. Really? Yeah. See, like to say a first word is a mirror. Okay, so th- there's a question about what, f- what, what foul language means. Okay, like what, how exactly that's defined. So there's a difference between being explicit about something when, it, when that's necessary um, versus using, um, or, or, or using rhetoric that's necessary for a particular purpose versus just speaking in a very crude and, and coarse manner. Okay? Um, also included are things like taking Hashem's name in vain. It's also forbidden speech. Swearing falsely would be forbidden speech. A lot of things are forbidden speech. Okay. Um, so, um, but so the, 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 the speaking in a, in, a, in, a, in a crass manner is a little bit vague as to exactly what that is. You kind of have to make a judgment call about that, right? Um, but okay. Now, Dvarim Batalim is speech that accomplishes nothing other than feeding our desire to talk and just. What? Idle chatter, Dvarim is speech that accomplishes nothing. But then I may have to erase the world of actions. The world of emotions. We'll just leave my favorite, the world of intellect. What about essence? Is that your favorite too? That's scary. You have to be like, you're really open to the world of essence. What if you need to talk nothing in order to get to talking something? Ah, well, that is not Dvarim Batalim. So, for instance, schmoozing for the purposes of establishing normal human relations, is right, okay? is not called Dvarim Batalim. That's part of Yeshuvah Shalayla. Can you do that with your wife? Of course. 
Wait, so what's considered actual base? That's a dalit, then a base. Then you can say everything. Is no, the second word? That's the base. No, you like. Okay. So, so here's the thing, right? Person comes into Shul and they say, Shleimi, Shamalechem, how's the wife, how's the kids, what's going on? Is that Tavarim Batalim? No. no, right? That's called building community. That's called building friendship. That's the important thing, right? If somebody has an issue that you discuss with someone, yeah, talking to someone about how their business is going, maybe giving them some advice about their business. Okay, right? The more intimate the relationship is, the more necessary it is to actually forge, to actually forge a sense of emotional bonding, and that happens through... Speaking, right? Yes. Okay, good? Mm-hmm. However, sitting and schmoozing with your friend for an hour after shul about Israeli politics, yeah. what does that accomplish? Nothing. As the Rebbe used to say, That's it's not... If you're sitting an hour talking about politics, like... For what? For what? Like, if, if you need to talk, I mean, there's what... Mm-hmm. If you really need to talk because you're talking, you need an hour's worth of talking to like build a relationship or something like that, then... Talk about the things that are going on in your life. Okay, the um, the Rebbe used to make fun of people who were um, not individually, but just collectively, about that people like like always want to be reading the news and and have an opinion. And the Rebbe says like it's not like they're going to call you from Washington and ask. We have this important decision. We need to know your opinion, right? It's like how exactly is you doing this like leading to anything productive? Okay. Dvarim Batalim means that it serves no purpose other than filling a kind of human indulgence. Right. Okay? So now... What about it's something you're passionate about? Let's say it's not politics. It's something that's good that you're passionate about. Like what? Environmental like sustainability, then it's fine. You're passionate purpose. But the, but the, the, here, uh, itself, you have to, but the issue is not the topic, okay? The issue is not the topic. The issue is the speech. Okay. Wait, what did you say? It means it fulfills no purpose other than fulfilling. Uh, 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 yeah, the humans have this need, this desire to indulge in stuff that's meaningless. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of, it, basically, what? I don't. What? What? Why do we have that need? It's like, one of it's one of the manifestations of Kleep that we learned about in chapter one. But people have a desire or a pull to things which are empty. Um, you've ever heard the expression "killing time"? Yeah. Okay. What is killing time? Wasting time. It's the sense that like... With no purpose. Right. right. And, and, and so anything can be... Different. The Rebbe actually said that he, at one point that he's going to stop ha- having for Bregans, except on Shabbos and Baruch and the, first sh- the last Shabbos of every month. And the reason is, as the Rebbe says, I tell people all the stuff, that they should go do stuff and change the world, and then what happens? Nothing. Nobody does anything, which means that there's no point in me saying it because nobody's doing anything. So I'm just basically just you just it's just devar it's just idle chatter. So you thought it was an avira? Um, no, because it, because it, but the Rebbe was making a point is that is that even within the realm of Torah there is a subtle notion of devar which is you're speaking about Torah ideas in order to encourage a person to do something and then it leads to nothing. That in some very subtle sense you consider that idle chatter, but it's not the actual sin of idle chatter. So if you don't learn, um, if you don't learn Torah, Lishma, then it's considered No, 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 no. Okay, the actual idol chapter we're talking about here is where it really has no value in it whatsoever. Everybody was saying that it doesn't make sense for me to sit and talk for six hours on a Shabbos afternoon to tell people to change the world if then everybody's going to go home and like say, well, that was nice, that was entertaining. 
Like, that's Dvarim Batelu. Um, it, 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 it's speaking, it doesn't lead to anything. Now, I, it's the, so you say it's Torah. The Rebbe says, look, if you want to learn Torah, you're better off sitting in, like, Bicharus, you'll learn more Torah that way. You don't have to listen to me talk. So Rebbe says, like, other than the times where I was told my, my Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, the Febregen, there's no reason for me to have any extra Febregens because people aren't doing anything. But the basic notion of Rebbe doesn't lead to anything. Things that are um, Yeshuvah Sha'olim are things that they actually serve a purpose above and beyond killing time. Yeshuvah Sha'olim means the dwelling of the world. So, for instance, speaking to your accountant about your taxes, is that called idle chatter? No. Greeting people in Shul and asking them how they're doing? No. Commiserating with friends about experiences? Not really idle chatter, right? You know, but that thing like you sit down for lunch and you start talking and then you spend like 20 minutes talking about like nothing? Yeah. That's called idle chatter. Like, like if a person, like, the, 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 well, that's the thing is that human beings, and again, what I want to be very clear is that is that anytime I get into specifics, they're not going. The specifics are going to be wrong because because every person is different, every group is different. Okay, but there is clearly a, a difference between small talk that breaks the ice and puts people in a sense of connectivity, which is a necessary thing to do. Conversations that are longer because something needs to be discussed, either because of the content needs to be discussed or a level of intimacy needs to be built. Right, and that's different than just killing time by talking about something that's entertaining and interesting but actually leads to nothing. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. So, now, if, if you can in all honesty say that, yes, those 20-minute conversation was actually well spent, it was useful, it led to something meaningful, right? Then it's not Tavarim Patelum. It's not idle chatter. Okay. Would an unproductive fight be idle chatter? For sure. For sure. It doesn't lead to anywhere. Right? As my mashpia as my told me before I got married, is to fight often and fight well. It's important marriage advice. Does that lead to something? Because there's a way, of the, so the fight, fight, fight well and fight often. Fighting well means that you're fighting in such a way that you're, that you're confronting disagreements, and sometimes that's extremely unpleasant, but in such a way that you are, are working out or even coming to a place of agreeing to disagree in such a way that you're closer after than you started. So when you fight over like stupid things even with your friends, it's the same concept? It's idle chatter, yeah. What does that accomplish? Well, like, it strengthens relationships, no? Like, like, even when you're fighting over something stupid, like you're like, oh, she took my dress without asking. Well, does that accomplish something? Because you're mad at her and you start fighting and you're like, well, next time don't take it without asking. No, but there's a, there's a way to do that that's constructive. The way to do that that's constructive is, for instance, no. to... Uh, no, there's a kind of fighting, which is... Which is in other words, there's a kind of... It's, there's something called being conflict avoidant, which is very bad. Yeah. Okay, but, and, and conflicts can be very tense, and, and it's a conflict. But there's a conflict where the, where the purpose of engaging in the conflict is to reach some point of... Um, agreement or closeness, right? And so if somebody, like you know, your friend took your, your dress and you're upset about it, you can come and say, look, I'm very upset that you took my dress without asking, right? And right, that could end up leading to a very emotionally tense conversation that ultimately like, 
if it's handled right with both parties, brings you closer together, right? Yeah. Right, as opposed to avoiding and saying, well, I won't let it bother me, it really does bother you, eats you up inside, it's a bad idea, yeah. right? But then if you come and you say, you know, you always do this, you take my dress and blah, 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 well, that's, sort of tips. That's, not gonna, that's not leading to something constructive, that's just making the situation worse, yeah. right? And possibly even, you know, you might end up saying forbidden things, right, by like insulting them and stuff like that, so. Right, but it's a very simple question, which is, you know, is 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 the is is the is, is are things better because I spent that time speaking what I said? Is it better because it was Torah was spoken? Is it better because some issue in the world has been addressed in a real way, whether it's getting the grocery list taken care of or working out a conflict between people, right, or or or, or building a sense of of. of intimate closeness between close friends or spouses or parents and children, right? Um, is it, there's a, there's a sense of warmth and welcomingness in the community. Have those things been achieved? If someone has an issue that's been, you know, a financial or medical issue that's been, you know, progress, progress has been made along with that, right? Person's anxieties have been dealt with, right? If those things are happening, that's not idle chatter, that's Yeshua Shalom, You're, that's part of dwelling in the world, that's part of being, you get functional. Right? But at the end of the day, you say, if we hadn't spent the past 20 minutes talking about whether, you know, which ice cream is, is, tastes better, like, the world would, like, our lives would not in any way be, be, be worse off. They might even actually be better had we not spent that 20 minutes. That was idle chatter. Even if you didn't say anything for a minute, it's just like, it was pointless. Like, it, was, it doesn't matter. And this is a very strong human tendency towards idle chatter. It's better just to be silent, right? That's right. Pirkei says that, that, um, that um, um, I've not found anything better for the body than silence, and the the and the and the fence that protects wisdom is silence, and the sign of a wise person is that they don't speak unless there's really a point to speaking. So, and this goes back to like we spoke about indulgent. It, idle chatter is, by definition, an indulgent behavior. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it's not, there is no, it, 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 what makes it what it is is that it doesn't lead to anything. That had it not happened, life would have been just. Now, obviously, how do you not, like, how do you make sure you don't engage in idle chatter? How does that work? Does anyone know how you make sure you engage? That only gets you so far. You, yeah, you, or, or I would say go a little bit deeper. You have to, you have to, your life has to be about something that really matters to you. And as your life is about something that really matters to you, right? Then you add a little bit of a thing before you talk. You'll notice that you tend only to speak about things that actually seem to have some actual benefit, some substance to them. Now, you might have like a wide-ranging conversation about all sorts of stuff. Um, my uncle, Olvashon, so he was a, a brilliant man, and he was a shleach on campus and a, and a professor on campus, which is pretty rare to have be both. Um, and he used to have college students over at his house and professors and things. And they would have like, conversations. And were the conversations about Torah? No. Conversations about all sorts of things. But somehow, somehow got to Torah. Now, did it somehow get to Torah because it just randomly ended up getting to Torah? Yeah. Professor of English Literature. Oh, wow. And a shliach. And a shliach. 
One of the few shluchim that the Rebbe told them to be a professor. Generally, the Rebbe had a rule against that. Generally, the Rebbe had a rule against that. You know what? What's your advice to a professor? No, but so, how do these conversations end up in something to do with Torah? Because. Because, because that, was, that was the purpose of the conversation all along, right? But my, my uncle being a brilliant man and an educated man and knowing a wide range of topics, being able to talk to anybody on almost any field on, on a level of proficiency and expertise and you're really engaging conversation and when you engage in conversation, you're opened up and, you really, and then slowly moving that person's mind to where their mind really is a vessel to receive Torah ideas in a very natural way. But that could take, you know, two hour interesting conversation which covers everything from, you know, colonialism to, to economics and, and somehow you end up in an important lesson about bringing Mashiach in a way that seems very natural but okay that, 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 that's, is, was any of that conversation Dvar Batalim's? I mean not really no I mean my uncle was an amazing person but um, but you know it's in that he never spoke to Batalim never they ever idle chatter because it's a difficult thing never to do but the more a person really cares about things that are meaningful serving Hashem helping other people building good relationships like time and speech are too precious of a thing just to waste on just killing time and so a person doesn't now you still need a certain amount of self-control a certain amount of thinking before you speak right but 90% of the work and not engage in negative chatter is in the attitude from where you're coming from and having a value for time and a value for the power of words. That make sense? Now, if, if a lot of us, we don't have that to such a great degree, and so we spend a lot of time talking about whatever pops into our mind to you know, fill the void in the empty air, right? And that's um, idle chatter. Is it a sin to speak idle chatter? No. no, no. For men. What? For men. Idle chatter. One second. We'll get to it. idle chatter is fundamentally klipas noga. It's permitted thing. You're not speaking about anything forbidden, right? The speech itself isn't forbidden. What's forbidden? What's bad about it is that it's purely indulgent, right? So it, it's the it's the klipas noga that descends into the three impure klipas, right? The, Which makes sense. No, but it can be. Is eating? Is eating? Is eating? Is eating food? It's, it's sinful in a spiritual sense. It's not like you did something. It's not like you, did you viol- did you do something that God prohibited? Thou shall not speak idle chatter. Where is that written in the Torah? It's not. It's not one of 613 mitzvahs. Unless you're a man. Why? Because men have an obligation to study Torah. When do men have an obligation to be studying Torah? Any available opportunity. Which means if a man is not studying Torah when he could have been studying Torah, then whatever he's doing is by definition sinful. Yep. What? Oh, there you go. There's a, that's, so, now, so now that, so, so the altar has to come with, well, what's a possible scenario where somebody could be speaking idle chatter and it's not sinful? 100%. The, no, no, the, 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 when, what? No, the, 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 when, when the Alter Rebbe wants to prove that a Bainani is someone who never sins, and any sin ever, the sin, he, he points out that there was a man named Rabbah, chapter one, there was a man named Rabbah, and Rabbah declared about himself that he was a Bainani. He was, he was the greatest rabbi of his time, and he said he was a Bainani. He said he was a Bainani. And one of the stories about him in the Gemara is that the angel of death wasn't able to kill him. 
because he was constantly studying Torah. So from here we see that a Benini is somebody who doesn't sin even the most difficult sin to not commit. The most difficult sin not to commit in practice is the sin of neglecting Torah study for a man. What, and it, work doesn't consider? No, because work, work is, work is, right. It's, it's every available opportunity. And work makes you unavailable. Yeah, I mean, because you have to, like, you have to eat. You have to pay your bills. You have to send your kids to school, right? But if you can pay your bills. What? What if you could pay your bills? So there's a, there's a, there's a notion that, the, that, the, that if a person wants to make more money and through that more money they'll be able to live at a higher quality lifestyle. That's okay. One second. That is, that, that, that is not, that, 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 that doesn't, that's not considered the sin of neglecting Torah study because that A, allows you to then say when you do learn you have more peace of mind and B, you can then support other people doing other good things. So that's not, right. And the thing about Torah study is that Torah study, the mitzvah of Torah study doesn't really have an absolute minimum like most mitzvahs. Right. Like what is the minimum a man needs to study Torah? A man is a mitzvah of Torah study. So what's the maximum he needs to study? At a very available opportunity. What's the minimum? No, the minimum is a little bit every morning and a little bit every evening. So let's say a person wants, either needs to or wants to work full time. How much, what are the absolute bare minimum limits? A little bit of morning, a little bit of night. What's the bare minimum? How much in the morning and how much at night? So back in the day, we don't, we don't, back in the day, the economics of, the, of society worked that if you were a day laborer, which was basically, that was like the lowest paid job. We still have that, right? You know what day laborers are? Yeah. Um, anyone here from uh, South, everyone here from the United States? Yeah. Okay. So, like, what, what, let's say you got, let's say you have a, a farm and you need some work done on your farm. And just like a one-time off job or something like that. So, economically, how do you, like, you can't, like, when you're going to go to an ad, you know, like a, a, a temp agency and, like, I need somebody to come to my farm and, like, you know, pick the, pick the cucumbers today, Right? It's like a it's a one day job, a two day job. So what do you do, right? Right? Or, or I need to take down the shed. You don't want to like hire like some sort of professional carpenter. So what do you do? Anyone know how this works? In Texas, you pick them up. It's not just in Texas. It's everywhere. You pick them up. There's some people on the side of the road. They're usually not legal. Right? And, and you do that for all sorts of stuff, right? That's called a day labor, right? It's like, I got a job. I need somebody to do it, right? Okay, so back in the day, you had a, you, you had a farm, right? So it was all agricultural stuff, right? Day labor, right? So you got someone, you got a whole orchard full of, of olives, and you, it's, it's picking season. So you get a day laborer, and he's like, okay, tomorrow um, we're, we're going to do the olive harvest. And he says, okay, how much you pay for a day's work? So I'll pay you, you know, a zoos. $20 for a day's work. It's like, okay. So what did you now just agree to as a day laborer? Payment. To do a day's work for $20, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how much is a day's work? Dawn. Dawn. Not, not sunrise. Dawn until the three stars come out. That's a day's work. So now, there's a problem. Like, are you allowed to daven? You just, you just, like, that, that, that's how the economics works. So, for instance, 
there's a whole discussion about like day workers like saying Shema while they're in the trees. They can say Shema on the tree, but can they come down? Do they, to, do, they have, do, they have, do they have to come down from the tree in order to daven? Do they say Birch Because the Birch takes you know, a few minutes, right? And you could be harvesting the olives then, right? There's like there's these actual discussions in the Mishnah and in the Gemara about this because they didn't, a day's work, I mean, this idea that we have like now is a day's work is eight hours a day with like a half hour mandatory break, right? That's like usually how it works in most Western countries. That's a relatively new thing. A day's work, it wasn't, you know, dusk till dark. And so the guy comes to his rabbi and says, well, I mean, like the only way I can put food on my table is I'm a day laborer. Like, when am I supposed to study Torah? Right? And, and you know what the rabbi said? Did you say Shema every morning? You recited the Shema in the evening? That's good enough. That's a little bit of Torah in the morning, a little bit. If really, really you don't have any other time, a man could fulfill his obligation of studying Torah by just reciting the Shema every morning and reciting Shema every evening, which he anyway has to do because the mitzvah of reciting so the Shema. Like for men, if you want to say, like, wrong, how we're that's not considered Yeah. Like, like the, 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 the minimum is basically almost is next to nothing. But... But that minimum is only available to the man if every other thing that he's, every other moment of his day is being used for some productive yeshiva olam activity, some part of settling the world of being a functional human being, right? But if he has time where he's not doing that, then he needs to be studying Torah. Okay? Here's an interesting question. Um, is, is a man supposed to have a fixed time for studying Torah? What? Yeah. It depends. If he's independently wealthy, then no. You know why? Because he's supposed to be studying all the time. If he's supported by some other person, then he should have fixed times for Torah study? No. The fixed times for Torah study are for the people who work part of the time. They have, you know, they, they work, they have stuff to take care of. So then, in order to make sure the Torah study doesn't get like pushed out completely, you're supposed to make fixed times. So this, this notion of like, when would you have a man who's like engaging in idle chatter and not doing the sin of neglecting Torah study? It's a very interesting question, right? Again, do women have the mitzvah of studying Torah? Yes. No, they do not have the mitzvah of studying Torah. Well, we don't get any mitzvah we're doing right now. You really want me to answer that question? Mm-hmm. Well, you just said no. Okay. Women have an obligation to study Torah. Okay? There's a difference between an obligation and a mitzvah. Okay? An obligation means that halacha requires you to do something. Now, does halacha require you to study Torah? Yes. Why? Number one, you need to know you need to know every single halacha that's relevant to you. Number two, you also have an obligation um, to to love Hashem, to know Hashem, to appreciate His unity, to trust Him. All of these things require extensive knowledge of Torah, right? So you have an obligation to learn so that you know. Moreover, you have an obligation of teichacha, of rebuke. Okay, what does rebuke mean? Rebuke means setting someone on the proper path. Okay? Now, can you set someone on the proper path if you yourself are not a good example of that proper path? No. No. And so, for instance, um, if you don't study Torah, you're going to have a hard time... um, Making, you're having a hard time having a, being a positive influence on the men in your life, but they should also be studying Torah, right? So that also creates a kind of an obligation. Okay? Plus, on top of all of that, okay, um, 
there is a there is a human tendency which is that um, if something is empty it doesn't stay neutral it starts go it starts being negatively influenced which means what which means if you are a well-educated woman about the world, but you are not comparatively well-educated about Torah, okay? even though, let's say, you, you have enough knowledge to know all the halachas you're supposed to do and all that stuff, let's say, theoretically, but the fact that your depth of knowledge about, say, I don't know, mathematics surpasses your knowledge of Torah, what does that do? It, it makes you more... It draws you into worldly things and causes a person to have a certain sense of belittling or den- it creates a denigrating attitude in the person's mind that Torah is a shallow thing, which ultimately undermines their Judaism. So there's uh, one necessary Torah for all sorts of reasons. And is she get rewarded, and, uh, and fulfilling obligation, a person gets rewarded and is very good. And plus, studying Torah is a mitzvah and there's a rule that if a person, if a Jew does a mitzvah they're not obligated to, they get rewarded. It's not the same as the reward for doing what you're obligated to do, but you get rewarded. So. But the mitzvah of Torah study is a separate mitzvah, and it entails two things that apply to men, not to women. Number one, men have to study Torah all the time and every day. The minimum is, like I said, a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening, even if you're literally working from the time you wake up, time you go to sleep, and you barely have enough time even to say, you, you don't even have to say the whole birch samazan because you don't have enough time you're working so much. Nonetheless, you still have to study Torah, but you could suffice with a little bit of Shema in the morning, the Shema in the evening. On the other extreme, that if a man doesn't need to be doing anything, then he must be studying Torah all the time. Okay? That's in terms of the time. Then there is also the quantity of the Torah study and quality of the Torah study. How much of the Torah does a man need to know? All of it. How much of the Torah does a woman need to know? Technically not all of it. Most of it, but not all of it. There are certain things that are not halachas she needs to know and are not going to necessarily lead to her to have more awareness of Hashem and are not necessary for her to take Torah as a deep, serious thing. And there's a level, right? So you could find a certain degrees of Torah where a woman doesn't need to know that particular subject or that to be that. But a man is required to know the entire Torah, which includes all of the verses of the Tanakh, all 613 mitzvahs, their halachas, their reasonings, and all of the major rabbinic works. The Mishnah, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the major Midrashim, the major medieval commentators, the major codes, and their commentaries. So how come Yeshiva curriculum, they don't cover all of that, they just do Gemara? Because you have to prioritize. You, you have to prioritize. There's halachas about how you, about, given that you have to know everything, like how do you prioritize those things? And Yeshiva's, one of the things is that Yeshiva's, um, prioritize something which gives you the skills to learn anything, which is Gemara. That's one thing. There's another thing also which is um, there's another thing also which is that men also have a qualitative obligation, which means if you understand something superficially and you could understand it in a deeper way, then a man is obligated to study it in a deeper way. So it's like like an ongoing, never-ending obligation. What? You don't need to learn Navi. Once you know how to read Hebrew, pick up a Navi and read it. Like writing a class on Navi. Like really. Like, like you really don't need a class on Navi. But they don't. I'm saying like... So, so, I, half the day of Gerson, half the day of Ian. You don't... Not covering the whole Well, first off, first off, not one of the things about yeshivas is that yeshivas, unlike a 
unlike women's institutions, are not actually, traditional institutions are not actually set up to teach you everything you need to know. There's, there's, yeshivas are, are, the model that yeshivas are built on is built on fostering independent study. So the idea is like a yeshiva is like, of course a bachar is supposed to like know what, you know, stuff says because like he picks up a book and he reads it. Like, I mean, there's a structure in order to progress a person in terms of their skills and breadth of knowledge, but it's not like, oh, if it's not in the curriculum, you're not supposed to know it. That's just not true. Now, is there a problem that sometimes that doesn't happen? And okay, I'm not getting into how all yeshivas are structured, but like the yeshiva system was not set up as like elementary school or high school. It's set up much more like postgraduate studies. Do anyone know what postgraduate studies look like in college? You don't really take a lot of classes. Most of it's independent work, right? That's what yeshivas are like. Like, even, even Gemara, right? Like, you have three hours of Gemara in the morning. What does that look like? It's chavrusas, and maybe you have a class twice a week. Like, that's... Right, so a person, like, you realize it's important to so you make, like... And, you know, the more serious bacham will do that. They'll, you know, if they don't do it when they're bacham, they do it when they're married. Like, oh, you know, I should know Tanakh. And they take 10 minutes a day, and they make, you know, I don't know, go through stuff. Yeah. But you're right, it's a very hard obligation to meet. To the point that it's, 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 it's on the border of being impossible. Yeah. Okay, but for our purposes, if a man could legitimately be involved in studying Torah and he is not doing so, then whatever he's doing is by definition a sin. Good? Even if it's helping No, because if he's helping, if he's doing something else that is legitimate use, you, Torah study is an obligation when you're not involved in anything else. There's not an obligation, there's no obligation to maximize your time studying Torah. That's a very pious thing to do. The obligation is to use all available time for studying Torah. There's a difference between those two things. Okay. What about teaching? What? Like all of our male teachers, is that, like, what is that considered for them? Or is there a Torah? I mean, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not. I don't even just mean it's centered. I mean, it's like yeshivas. Rabbis that teach men. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely learning Torah. Are they doing a separate mitzvah by like. Yes, it's a separate mitzvah. But are they like. I mean, I guess in Avera against the mitzvah of learning Torah? No, 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 no. Yeah, the, the highest well, the highest form of, of learning Torah is often is to teach Torah. Okay. Fine. So what happens, now that we've spent all that time on that, what happens, okay, oh, so how do you have a man who's speaking idle chatter it has to be that he's incapable of learning Torah, which is really hard to think about what that situation would be like, especially nowadays where, like, I mean, back in the day you could imagine it, right? Like, let's say somebody was illiterate, right? And there's no, like, so what are you supposed to do? And there's no class going on right now, so how are you supposed to study Torah, right? But nowadays that's basically impossible because there's no one that's illiterate in, I mean, there's almost no one that's illiterate in every language, right? So like, even if you don't know anything, right? You could like, I don't know, take a book in English and read that, right? That's Torah study, but whatever. So what happens to this person's soul? He must undergo a cleansing of his soul to rid it of the uncleanliness of his klipa. So idle chatter, what does it do? It puts a klipa inside the person. And does idle chatter ever elevated by doing mitzvahs later on in life? Is this only yeah. talking about men? Or is this talking about no, this is talking also about women because it's when it's permitted. So when it's permitted, idle chatter for women is always permitted because they don't have a mitzvah of studying Torah. But it still puts klipa inside? Yeah, because it's, 
Well, it's not just klipas noga. It's actually think about it. Idle chatter is fundamentally an indulgent behavior, right? So it's klipas noga that enters the three of your klipas, and that's never elevated. Like food you eat could be elevated because ultimately enhances your ability to do things. Okay, but even if you do chuva, there's still an imprint. But it still leaves an imprint. That's what he's saying. Even here. on three imprints. No, 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 no. It's it's it's, it's, it's an imprint of klipas noga, but it sticks there. Yeah. And this the way you get rid of this is through the hollow of a sling, which is called the in Hebrew is called kafa kelo. So anyone know what a sling is? It's like you know David and Goliath, right? So he had a sling. Could I use to show you what it looks like for those of you who don't know? It's not a rubber band, actually. It's like it's like a string. Okay, one end of the string. I'll draw it for you. That's a little loop, okay? You put the loop around your finger. Mm-hmm. This is like a pouch. It's called the kaf, because it's like the palm of a hand. That's, in Hebrew, it's called the kaf. That's also the same word for a spoon. Palm, okay? It's like a little hollow place, okay? So, and this, so it has a little kind of indent there, like you throw your palm like that, and you put a stone there, and you hold this part over there, and you wrap, and then you take this end, and you hold it like this, and you go like that. And as you spin it, you pull up you have some angular momentum, and then you let go of this part at the right point, and what happens is it goes flying. This, this, this stone goes flying, okay? That's called, okay? That's what a sling is. So the kafa kela is this. Now what does that mean? Well, the way it works is um, your soul gets put into a sling, and Hashem goes like this. And your soul goes, Wah! boom. And that gets rid of the klipa. That's very disgusting. Okay. Now, obviously, um, that needs to be explained. What's the metaphor there, right? Yes. So basically, it's like this. Okay? What? No, 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 no. That's the decomposing of the soul, of the body. That's with food. Food affects the body. This is much more just the soul itself. Okay? So the way this works is. Um, the soul is shown how it could have used its time on earth and then what it actually did. So you get flung from the realm of holiness back and forth from the realm of klipa. So now I'll give you an example of what it's like. Have you ever like wasted a lot of time? Yeah? Okay, now, um, how does it feel when you see somebody? I'll give you an example. Like, like, let's, say, let's say you wasted a lot of time. And not just one day, two days, three days, but like a period of time. Like say a season, a month, uh, a few months, right? Whatever it is, right? And you meet someone that you know, and you see what they've accomplished in that same period of time because they didn't waste time. How do you feel? Horrible. Horrible. So how does this work? Is that How does this klipa get out of the person? Is that Hashem flings the, the soul into an alternative version of reality of what would your life have looked like in terms of, had you not wasted all that time idle chattering? Okay, now go back to this of what your life actually looked like. And what does that do? Is this when it's being spun around? But it uses a different method. In a different way. In a different way. 
Is this when it's being spun around or it's flung and then it's flung? It's flung. flung. It's flung from one extreme. The swing is just an example of how you get something to move very fast. The idea is that it's flung to the opposite extreme, right? You have this life full of wasted, idle chatter, right? And then the soul is flung into this alternative version of reality where you didn't waste any of that time. And you just become totally repulsed by that. And that being repulsed by how you wasted all this time, what does that do? It breaks the hold. And by the way, you can, hang up ha- this, you, you can kind of even have this experience nowadays, or you don't have to wait till you're dead for Kafa Kella, right? If you really let it sink in, like what life could have been had you not wasted time. When you get Kafa After you die. For what again? For idle chatter. Even though it was perfectly permitted. Yeah? My favorite example of this is that when, have you ever been on the internet and you're scrolling? A sling, sling. The sling flings you across. Have you ever been on the internet and you're like checking one thing and another thing and another thing? I don't know, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, and um, an hour and a half goes by. Did that ever happen to you? Okay. Um, what would happen if you actually stopped and thought about when you about what you actually could accomplish in an hour and a half? Well, first off, how would you feel about that? You, yeah. And like whatever, whatever, whatever attachment you had to that would just be totally. So that's what Kafa Kel is. It's the same. Like, if you go like somewhere and you're like, for example, like, maybe like, you're a mind, you're like, learning, learning, learning all day, and then you go home, and then you like spend like 10 hours watching TV all day, and you like, think about how much you could have done. It's a lot easier to understand. So basically, what happens to the soul is that once the soul is free from the body, Hashem basically puts the soul in this like virtual reality, it's flung to this other life where it's basically all of your life, what it would have looked like, minus all the idle chatter. And that just is really disheartening. Now, that's assuming that the idle chatter was permitted, right? But with regard to forbidden speech, such as scoffing, slander, and the like, which stem from the complete three impure klipas, the hollow of the sling alone does not suffice to cleanse and as remove the uncleanness and remove the uncleanness of the soul, it must be descend into Gehenna. So this is the rule. If the thing is actually intrinsically in three impure klipas, then you need to go to Gehenna. So now we're going to talk a little about what Gehenna is like. Okay. Does anyone know the rule of how you make a pot kosher? How do you make a pot kosher? What? Well, so the rule is like this. The rule is like this. The way the non-kosher stuff got in, that's how it gets out. So, if you have a barbecue grill, and you, and you cooked on that barbecue grill bacon. I don't know, do you cook bacon on barbecue grills? I don't know. But what would you cook on a barbecue grill that's not kosher? Pork chops? Pork chops. You put... What pork sausage on a on a barbecue grill, right? And then you take that grill and you immerse it in boiling water. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. You have to heat the grill up to like six hundred. You have to heat the grill up to the point that it's um, what's considered in halacha glowing hot. Although, given the way we make metals nowadays, it might not actually glow. It was made of just pure iron; it would glow, but it may not actually glow. Okay. What if you what if you um, cook? Um, 
What what if you what if you uh, what if you fry bacon in a pan? Can you dip that pan in boiling water? Is that good enough? No. What do you need to do? You need to take a blowtorch to that pan and blowtorch it to the point that it's red hot or would be red hot if it was made of iron. Um, which, by the way, if that pan was a, if that pan was a Teflon pan, then there's nothing you can do about it because uh, you're, you're going to destroy the pan. So. Um, you know those pans that have non-stick coating on them? So if you have one of those pans and you cook non-kosher food on the pan, just like with, without, not, bo- not boiling, but like, like frying with a tiny bit of oil, there's nothing to do because the only way to kosher that is to blowtorch the pan and blowtorching it ruins it and there's a rule against koshering things that ruin the thing because nobody thinks you're not going to do it properly. Now, on the other hand, if it was... Can you blowtorch it with the boiling stone? No, 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 no. The blowtorch? The blowtorch. So, if you put it in the blowtorch, you put boiling hot water and a stone? No. That won't work. No. Where's the stone? Pesach? Pesach is different because Pesach, when the food got into the... the, the Pesach is... Pesach... The, 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 okay. the, the, the rule is the way it got in, the way it got, goes out. So now if it's like a boiling... If it's a boiling... Um, if it was a pot that used to like cook things with liquid, then you can... Boiling water will be good enough. Okay. Countertops is an interesting thing because countertops, how does the non-kosher thing get into the countertop? You took the hot pot off the stove and you put it on and then there was some moisture stuff there, right? So that's where, when you want to kosher a countertop, that's where the boiling water hot stone thing works. But it doesn't work on pots, it works on countertops. And even then, assuming the countertop is made of certain materials. Okay, so the way it goes in is the way it gets out. And the idea is because it's actually in there. Okay, so here's the thing about Klipas Noga versus the three impure Klipas. Klipas Noga cakes around the soul, and so what do you have to do is you have to get it off. If it's a very bodily thing like food, you get it off by experiencing the disgust of the body decomposing. If it's something that's more psychological like idle chatter, you get it off by having the soul see what life would have been like with all of that, and that gets it off, right? But it's like, in a sense, like beating a carpet. When you beat a carpet, you're getting the dust out of the carpet. That's basically, the common between the purgatory of the grave and the slingshot, or the, the, the howl of the sling, is that what they're doing is they're, they're getting rid of the klipa that has adhered to the soul. But the three impure klipas do not adhere to the soul. They can become absorbed into the soul. They infect the soul like a disease like the non-kosher food that goes into the pot. And therefore, it has to actually be extracted out of the soul. And that is a very painful process. And the basic rule is, the way it got in is the way it got out. So all these things you're, you're saying, like how it's like, get, like see what life was like that idle chat and all that stuff, is that hell or goes to hell after? That's after. So first, so step one is, step one is, um, you experience the body. I'm, I'm not, it, it, step one is you experience the body decomposing and the soul being shown what life could have been like without wasting all of that time. Like what's going to show you, like, you skydiving or something? What? Like it's going to show you, like, doing, like, cool things in your time instead of talking. It's in, no, it's, no, not cool things. Things that are meaningful. Like yeah, but you're not going to see the activity. You're going to see the way it would affect the soul. Right? 
because the activity is meaningless. I thought you do watch your life. One second. You, you do, but you don't watch it like a video. What you get to do is you get to experience the emptiness that your soul experienced during the idle chatter and then contrast the very same life without that emptiness but being filled with something that was significant and meaningful. That's what happens. You don't watch it from the outside. Watching from the outside is pointless. You walk, no, it's you experience still a horrible it. feeling. Yeah, but it's much horrible when you have to experience it from the inside. Once all of that is done, once you've shaken off the soul from all the, the muck on the outside, then comes for time for the deep cleaning. So that carpet, like you beat the carpet and get all the dust out, but it's stained. And now what do you have to do? You got to put, you use detergents and hot water and steam to like get all the staining out of the carpet. So what does Gehenim do? It's a deep cleaning. It's getting stuff out of the soul, not just stuff that was caked on and adhered to the soul. Okay. And that is, and the basic rule is going to be like this. I'll preempt a little bit. There are two basic parts of Gehenim. There's what's called the Gehenim of fire and the Gehenim of snow. Okay, the Gehenim of fire. How does this? How does the klipa get out of the soul? It's burned out. In the in the Gehenna of snow, how does the klipa get out of the soul? It's frozen it out. Okay, so the analogy that's used for this is, um, has anyone here ever gotten frostbite? Yes. Okay, now, back before we have modern, modern medicine, what is the solution for frostbite? Anyone know the solution for frostbite? What? Cold. Cold, right. So the way back in the day is you frostbite is that if your hand has frostbite, they take your hand and they shove it in the snow. No, no, no. That's exactly what you do. But that makes it more cold. It does. It does, but it actually undoes the process slowly. The thing is now what is the worst thing you can do? The whole time I have to be in the, in, the, in the snow? The whole time I have to be in the snow? Until what? Until it just freezing so you don't know if it's frostbite or freezing? No. Because of the heat transfer. Because of the heat transfer. The cold absorbs, absorbs the heat out, which allows the blood to flow in, and that's what makes the frostbite go away. If, on the other hand, you put heat in from the outside, you will create permanent damage. What about regular temperature? No. You have to use cold. The damage, the way it works is you have to get the heart to transfer heat through the blood. What about burning? What? And what about... Burnt. What about burns? You don't put it in a. It's an analogy. It's I mean, the analogy when they want to say like, what does it mean you freeze out? How do you freeze out the thing? So the analogy that was used is that the way. You use freeze dried fruit. What? You freeze dried fruit. You could use freeze dried fruit. They didn't have freeze dried fruit back then. No, but they used snow. They literally would use snow. They would take. I mean, depending on it is if you have frostbite over whole parts of the body, that could happen at times, right? So what happens like a person has like a whole limb in frostbite is they would literally take snow and they would put it on the person, they would rub the snow and it's so hard to take new snow. And, and you're using the body heat to melt the snow and that gets... Oh my God. That sounds terrible. It is terrible. I know. Yeah. Right? Or, you know... What do they do now? Now, I mean, if you have serious, serious frostburn, the principle works the same, but they don't use snow. They use, like, they use like they use like they use like things that are more directly temperature right they regulate the temperature and stuff. Oh, shit. Yeah, but it's it's really bad. Frostbite it's is bad. It's not good to have frostbite. Mine yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. What? For this class. All right. So, 
How does the klipa get into us? Well, it depends. If it's a, there's two kinds of sins. There's what's called sins of commission, means you did something that God said not to do. Now, why would you ever do something that God said not to do? We're separate individuals. We feel separate individuals. No, no, really. Why? We're everything. And, 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 we want to. What? Because we want to. Yeah. And. So it's our desire and our passion that gets the klipa into us. And so any klipa that gets in through desire and passion, how does it have to come out? Okay. Do you know where the heat of the fire comes from in Gehenna? There are angels. And these angels, they are very passionate. You know what they're passionate about? God's honor. God's dignity. You ever, like... You ever see like a little kid who, who like someone insulted their parents and they flip out? You ever see that? So there's angels that are like that. And these angels, they're, they're not the brightest angels, they're not the smartest angels, but they're really devoted, they're really passionate about God. And then you take the soul that was really, you know, that did a sin because it was passionate about Cleopas, drop it around those angels. And like, you what? You, how could you? And, like, <laughs> and that's how it burns it out of the soul, yeah. That's the Gehenna of fire. Ah, yep. I, I think so. I think this first one's worse. It is. The, 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 you know, it actually says that the Gehenna of snow is far worse. It's way worse. Like, the Gehenna of, of snow is. The Gehenna of snow is something else entirely. It never hurt me. The Gehenna of snow, the Gehenna of snow Horrible. means that you get to. Right? painful to have, it's painful emotionally, they're not painful physically. Well, no, 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 all these are, the, so what's the Gehen of Snow? The Gehen of Snow is, so they're in the sins of omission, you just didn't do something that you, that you should have done. Well, why didn't you do the thing you should have done? Because you didn't care, right? You were indifferent. You felt like God wasn't, wasn't, wasn't real. Well, how would you like to experience what reality would be like with, this? yeah, there is no God, there is no, it's just empty coldness devoid of any truth. You want to experience the, that for what that really is? Go for it. And so the soul that didn't put on tefillin or didn't light Shabbos candles or didn't do whatever thing was do because it was cold and indifferent to God, it goes to a place which is devoid of any godliness and gets to feel how cold that really is. And what does that do? The soul becomes, can't bear it. And so the need to connect to God gets drawn out of the soul and that pushes the klipa out. None of these are, by the way, wonderful experiences. I just want to point that out. They're extremely painful. Unless you're uh, someone who's never sinned or you died sanctifying God's name. Or you were punished by the base sin for your sins. Those are three exceptions. So, what? Yeah, yeah. If you did shuva and then the base didn't put you to death or something, or you did shuva and then got lashed for the sin or whatever. So what's worse, to get stones to death or to get this after you Oh, after life is far worse. Like after, after the um. Wait, like I know I'm asking. Like if a terrorist stabs you, that can change that. What? If you die from a terrorist. If you die, if you die because if you die because somebody wanted to kill you because you're Jewish, then it's considered dying in kedushah. Yes. Yeah. That that like that reveals something about the soul, which just frees it of all klipas, and then no problem. Because we're the seventh generation, and she asks, "How many? Why is that fair that we don't get experience?" What? And you have one out of nine. How is that fair that we get experience? 
we don't get to experience it. Who says you won't get to experience it? Do you know why the Snagdim are afraid of Mashiach's coming? Because, like, the cleansing of the soul still has to happen. When is happening? We don't have time. We're actually around Mashiach. Yeah, so, like, it can happen very quickly. There's a whole discussion about it in the literature. It's, it's quite so a I'm for sure having some sort of death? No, I'm not for sure. It's a discussion. I thought I'm not dying. I, I, it's, 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 <laughs> I don't want to just say, I, I'm not addressing it. I'm just, I'm just telling you, it is a complex issue. It's addressed. And that's why, that's why there are certain groups of Jews who are actually like, Mashiach's coming is not such a great thing. Because then, um, yeah. It's, like, it's a day of judgment. It's called the day of judgment. So we're getting it? Like we're in some generation? Why not? Because we don't... Now, you could argue, you could argue, you could argue that the coming of Mashiach works differently. Is that, is that Hashem reveals His truth in the cleave but disappears, and so you don't need it. That could also be the case. Also, we always say that, like, that Hashem is in a better place when it goes to, to Shemayim. It is. It's not. It's sure it clearly is. suffering more. Well, I mean, it takes... It, yeah, I mean, the rule, by the way, is... I would just like to point this out. This is very important. If you are... If you... Not you. If someone is allowed into Gehenna... That means that they have a direct ticket to Ghana. To oh, so we want to go to Ghana? Oh, yeah. The problem is those those souls that Hashem decides are not allowed into Ghana. Then what happens to you? You're just trapped and you're stuck. You find bodies in No, then you skip it. Then you don't need it. You're only a Gilgul if you don't go to Ghana? Ah, yes. What? So, 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 yes. One of, one, there's, no, there's many kinds of Gilgulim. There's many kinds of reincarnation. One kind of reincarnation is because Gehenem would not be effective for you, which you can be thankful you do not have to worry about. Well, do you know why? Because the, because the mitzvah of Torah study creates a barrier against the fire of Gehenna. So we could go to Gehenna? One second, one second, which means if you have a man who studies a lot of Torah, but has klipa in his soul, it's like you need a, it's like, you know, those people that like, they need a treatment, but they're resistant to the treatment. Yeah. Like, it's not great if it's you're, it, just well, it wasn't a matter for women anyway, because women don't have the mitzvah of Torah study, so women, Gehenim is always effective for women. So we're going for sure to the Gehenim? I How thought about? if we don't get to go to the Gehenim, then we're gonna go in another body? So in this case. Person, there's many ways of going into another body. The most classic way is that the soul cannot be cleansed in Gehenna. The reason why a soul would not be able to be cleansed in Gehenna is because it's garbed with a lot of Torah study. And so there's no access point for the fires of Gehenna to enter. I thought Gehenna was good. It is good. And that creates a problem now because the soul needs to be cleansed from the klipas. It can't go to Ghanaian with the klipa. But it can't go to Gehenna because Gehenna is not effective. So then what does Hashem do for such souls? Mm-hmm. It sends them back into this world. That's not good. That's which is worse. Which is worse, yeah. yeah but you don't have to worry about that because you're a woman. No, so it's like not an issue. So okay, I'm what? Women can have Gilgal for other reasons. Oh, okay. But this idea of Gilgal because Gehenna wouldn't work for you or doesn't apply to Okay, but you still could come down again. So. But you don't want to come down. Again. I thought everyone comes down again. That's why. No, because then you go to Gehenna. As a general rule, as a general rule, Gilgulim are complicated, and I do not want to go into every detail. I'm only bringing up the part of Gilgulim that relates to Gehenna. If a soul is not allowed, if some, so there's some souls don't go to Gehenna because it's not effective. 
So then the Hashem's solution for that is they come back into this world and then they have to fix things up in here. There's another thing where Hashem decides that the person is wicked enough that he doesn't want them to get cleansed. They don't deserve the cleansing of Gehenna. And then that soul wanders. And that is the worst. I can't believe we're going through this. What? I can't believe we're I didn't say for sure. I just said it's a discussion. Just don't, it's a discussion. It's discussed. We are special. Clearly not. No, not clearly not. I'm, 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 I'm leaving. That's an issue that's discussed. There's different opinions. The Rebbe even changed his mind on the topic. Yes. The last sikhs that the Rebbe spoke about, the Rebbe said we won't have death in Gehenna. But there's a discussion because the Zohar seems to play opposite. I'm not getting into all the details. It's a complex discussion. Okay. But the thing is, Gehenna is not like the things we were talking about previously because the things we were talking about is, is, is a superficial thing. There's something external to the soul that's attached to the soul. It's an issue of attachment. And so you need, to, you need to break the bond between the soul and that thing. And that happens either if it's a physical indulge, it's a physical thing, like food. It comes through the purgatory of the grave. If it's something like wasting time, right, idle chatter, then that comes through. What do we say on? One second. That comes through... The, through, through, through the um, seeing what you missed, right? But Gehenna is something else entirely. Gehenna is you have to actually go through the process of the sin in the inverse. You have to experience that very same thing, but in the inverse. So instead of experiencing your passion for the sin, you experience the the zealousness of the angels for God. And and it said the language, the expression that's used is that the fires of Gehenna come from the the dripping of the sweat of the angels. Like they're so intense and zealous for God Thank you. that they're, um, they produce this sweat, and that sweat turns into a river of fire that the soul is cleansed by. Yeah. It's all metaphoric, obviously. There's not actual physical fire there. Oh, right? Which makes it worse, by the way. Because physical thing. You well, because physical, the, the Ramban says that like a stone is physical, it doesn't feel anything, right? And a horse is not entirely physical and it can feel pain, right? But a horse can't experience like existential pain, right? Only like, you know, physical and emotional pain. And a human being has a, a soul that is more spiritual. And so the thing is, the more spiritual something is, the more visceral the experiences of pain and pleasure are. So if you go through this Gehenna, the cleansing process in Gehenna, it's much more intense than if you would do the same thing in the body. So, yeah. Say that they like had like a, a life or death like experience that they're like in coma for a while and like that they whatever like their bodies there but they're not there like their yeah. soul isn't there. Like, what happens to them? Like how do they return? Who said they ever left? They I don't know. I also don't know. I also don't know. I want you to know something. I am not a prophet. I worked very hard to become a prophet, and they rejected my application every time I applied to prophecy school. It was something about like you're not allowed to give into your evil inclination, and when I lied about that on the application, they said that itself was giving into the evil inclination, and they rejected no. my application. So I'm not a prophet. So I only know what people who are prophetic written in books, and um, I have yet to encounter the prophetic book that describes how what really happens in these so-called you know near-death experiences and like you know, um, and um, so I don't know. Now, if you ask me my personal opinion, I think a lot of it's hallucinations that that trigger. Um, innate des- that, that allow a person to experience innate desires, um, um, suppressed v- beliefs, um, 
probably facilitated by some degree of oxygen deprivation. But that's my personal opinion about what's probably most of the time. But I don't know. I could be wrong. There's like a story of a guy that he like wasn't religious, whatever. Um, that happened to him. He almost died. He was in coma for like three months. And he comes back and he like said like, Hashem only sent him back because he needed to learn Torah. And now like he's like, like yeah. in, in yeshiva, like really learning and really focused. That's great. That's wonderful. But I don't know if it's true. I mean, I, I mean, know. is it true that he was under a coma? Probably. Is it true that he had such sort of vision? Probably. Is it true that now he's, you know, learning Torah and doing mitzvahs? Probably. Does that mean he actually experienced the afterlife? No. no. Like, I have a friend who, um, how did he become religious? Is that he went on a birthright trip and he like got very inspired and whatever, but like he decided he's not staying and you know, Israel and Torah and Mitzvah. It's not for him. You know why it's not for him? Because he had a car. No, There's a whole culture. Certain, there's certain things where, like, a car is like, it's like a wife. It's like something you invest in. And, like, you constantly update. And like, You know that kind of people, those kinds of people, that kind of a car? Right? It's, right? No, 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 like, like, it's their life, it's their life. he replaced, he replacing parts, and like, upgrading, and like, you know, and, and then, and then, and then other people also have cars, and you're like, you, whose car is better, and like, that's like your whole life, like, that was, he was part of that whole culture. Um, he became materialistic. What's that, what? Extremely materialistic, right? Right, yeah. Um, he was also really, he was also into rapping, and it was a whole thing, he was part of this whole thing, he was like, I can't leave it. my car, my car, I mean, just, I just invested $30,000 in getting, like, new whatever parts to my car, I can't just, like, leave that and, like, this whole religion thing, it's not for me. Anyway, <laughs> what? Because it wasn't just about the car, it's, like, the whole culture of the car, like, his whole life. That doesn't, that, like, you can't go off to, like, learn in yeshiva. If you really care about something, you would. Anyway, so he went back to America. And a week after he got back, he got in a car crash, and the car was totaled, and he was and he was put out for a few for like a week in the hospital, and, he, and he's in the hospital, and like can and like can like cast everything, thinking like wait wait a minute, like what is my life really all about? And then he decided that he probably should like go to yeshiva, and he didn't go back to Israel, he went to yeshiva in America, but. So yeah, God, God, God sends messages. Like I don't know why can't God give a person a hallucination to make them do true? But like it's, why not? What? No, the car was totaled. No, 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 change, change in life. Wow. Now he doesn't drive anymore? He, he put out one Jewish rap album, and then I asked him, is he going to put out another one? He said no, and I said, why? He said, I have a choice. Either I can you know, be a chassid and have a chassidish family, or I can make rap music, even if it's mm. Jewish. They don't work together. He like saw where that was, uh, that whole genre of like, it just doesn't really work. Um, and, so I think, I think now he's like a business consultant and like he, you know, has fits times for Torah study and has nice mm-hmm. children and, cool. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we lost touch after a while because we knew each other in Shiva, but, yeah, that's, um, so anyway, I mean, the Rambam says that many of the God speaking to people in the Chumash, to the wicked people, is not actually Nuvu at all, just God like giving them hallucinations. He said everything's hallucinations. No. He so says some things are prophetic visions and he says some things aren't even prophetic yeah. visions, they're just hallucinations. Those are different. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like, but like, if you ask me, like, it, it, I, my, I'm more inclined to think that, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing supernatural. Not that it doesn't mean it comes from Hashem. Everything comes from Hashem. And if Hashem gives a person a hallucination, like by all means, like why not? <laughs> he can crash your car to make you think about life. He can give you a hallucination to make you think about life. Why not? It doesn't bother me. 
Wait, but like when like they, does that have something to do with like when someone like dies and they say like Kaddish for them? It makes them like not feel as much pain or something. Yeah, Kaddish strengthens the soul's sense of godliness and elevates the soul, so it makes this whole process go much smoother. Yeah. Like it makes it not hurt as much. Yeah, yeah. But if someone doesn't have kids. That's why we try and have someone say Kaddish for them. Oh. Yeah. When um people say like hardships in this world or whatever, like things cleanse you, what does mm-hmm. that mean in terms of this? It means that if you have sinned and you've done shuva and then you go through hardships and suffering, that that suffering can affect the cleansing of the soul. In the same, yes, yes, yes. So, yep. So that's Gehenim. Very uplifting. Um, uh, the point is that Gehenim is very serious because it's not just that the klipah is worse; it actually gets into you in a way that's much much more permanent. It literally becomes ingested into the soul. Not so pleasant. All right. Okay. Anyway, next class, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Gehenim and then the special Gehenim for neglecting Torah study. Did we already talk about math? No, and then we'll do math. Um, But there's a special Gehenim for neglecting Torah study. It's the worst Gehenna of all. I have my question. Okay, well, so Torah study protects you from whatever Gehenna, then you end up somewhere worse. Yeah. Oh, neglect, never mind. Yeah, you can't, you can't get that to Gehenna, so don't worry about it. So, rabbinic prohibitions turn things that were originally previous known into three and pure Khalifa. Right. Because we couldn't have redeemed those previous known anyways, it's better to prohibit them. Right. But. Before it was a rabbinic prohibition on like Shabbat or Shoshana blowing a shofar.